Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 101st episode of MGG Fast Finance, the financial podcast with no rivals. MGG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MGG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin'. And we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, James. Good evening. Glad to be here and uh, looking forward to another solid episode for all of our listeners. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, we're back to our usual format this week. You want to break it down for everybody, Travis? Sure. Segment one is our top movers. We are looking at the cards that increased in price the most this week. Segment two, our cards to watch. James and I will talk about some of the cards we've got our eyes on. Segment three, our metagame week in review. This week is Star City, Colorado, a modern Star City Open. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week. We will probably talk about Rivals of Ixalan. The full spoiler was released this past Friday after a single week of spoilers, and we'll see if there's anything interesting out there. Let's get the week started. Segment one, our top movers. First card of the week is Mog Catcher. We're looking at uh, the Nemesis copy. It's the only one that's out there. Foils specifically. Started the week at around $13, up around $26 for a double up. This is from, again, Nemesis. So it's older than I am. Not exactly, but it's still pretty old. Uh, it's an old border. It just tutors goblins out of your library and puts them into play for three mana. It's a pretty busted card. Um for what it does, uh, but I don't think there's any new demand so much as it just there was probably two copies online. People might have bought them. One guy bought one and the other guy who had one left just doubled his price because he could. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, uh, what do you got next for us, James? So Popper's been on the hot seat lately. People, A lot of people trying to push into that format probably uh, as a reaction to frustrations with the standard environment. Um, Ash Barons as a result, a card that's only ever been released in Commander 2016 that allows you to basic uh, land cycle, right? Um, Moved from $4 to $9, which was up from even less than that. So we're talking about almost, it's probably going to end up in the $10 range by the time all is said and done before Wizards gets a chance to re-release this thing. Um, Pretty much been cleaned out all over the place. Um, So big, big gains for people that have been sitting on a whole bunch of copies of these that got traded in and have been sitting in bulk boxes. Do you think this is due to Popper rather than just it generally being decent in EDH? It's been talked about on Popper in a bunch of different places. So yeah, um, okay. I think that the buyout was very targeted um, as people, as somebody noticed that supply was getting low and then it was echoed by a bunch of different people in the community. And that led to people trying to get their hands on additional copies. I I think that the speculation has far outpaced the natural demand, but anybody who's looking to build a popper deck anytime soon probably wants copies of this card and uh, they're going to be few and far between. Sure. This is, I got to tell you, I 
really do not like Popper, or at least I do not like trying to speculate on Popper in any capacity. I think that is a fool's game. Uh, even if cards may momentarily spike in price and you look at it and go, damn, I could have made money on that. Um, every card in that just seems so easy to reprint because they're common. And when they do get reprinted, they're going to be reprinted in a large volume. So I have to stress as far as formats go, it's hard to pick one that I think is worse than Popper. I would rather buy cards for tiny leaders than Popper. Sure. I mean, trying to speculate on, on a format where the entire purpose is that people want to play it because it's cheap is kind of a fool's bargain because if a, a specific card gets too expensive in the format, it is going to be due for a reprint. And it's also may just push people off that deck into a different deck yeah, and format. I agree. It's um, expensive cards are the antithesis of that format. So you don't want to be trying to make money on it. Um, however, however, outside of the speculation realm, if you're just talking about what do you, what, what might you have lying around if you bought some commander 2016 decks, um, you know, you probably have a couple of copies of Ash Baron sitting around the house. Those might be something. Yeah, you want sure. To trade I mean, if you've got them, by all means, get rid of them. Sorry, yeah, local poverty. Um, local poverty. Okay, so next up is Marrow Commerce. Uh, this is an enchantment from Lorwyn. It's a pretty straightforward card. Just untaps your Merfolk every turn. Um, this is you know had casual demand since it was released forever ago. Uh, but Merfolk as a tribe has not been the most popular, especially casually. It seems to be fine. You know, it has its fans in competitive magic, but. Um, casually it's not been the biggest tribe but we're getting a bunch more merfolk again with rivals of Ixalan apparently people are looking for targets for that um, you know a, a, a two mana enchantment that does this uh, I mean it's a tribal one you know where it's not like um, Seedborn Muse it costs five uh, it, hits, it hits everybody so it's more specific but it's very good if you're in merfolk so I do think merfolk players are going to be trying to play this card I'm sorry I didn't tell you how much what the price change was the foils from Lorwyn went from two and change maybe three dollars up to seven uh, and I do think people will pay seven dollars for foil copies of this card so whoever bought it out is probably going to have been successful I think it's a reaction to Kumena, Tyrant of Orozka, primarily. That's the three-mana 2-4 that's been announced for Rivals of Ixalan, where it's a legendary Merfolk Shaman. You can tap it, tap another Merfolk you control to give it to make it unblockable for the turn. You can tap three Merfolk you control to draw a card, or tap five untapped Merfolk to put a plus one, plus one, one counter on each Merfolk you control. And what this allows you to do is utilize those effects in your turn. And oh, yeah, that's actually and really good. I hadn't thought about that interaction turn. specifically, but that is even better than just untapping your guys, having something to do with them like that. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So then we got Mercadian Mass Stone Rain Foils moving for a dot from a dollar fifty to four fifty. That's just an old set uh, and a foil that uh, when you're playing Stone Rains, you may be interested in. Um, no big thing there. Uh, unlikely that many of us have most a lot of those lying around. Ditto the next card on the list: Floating Dream Zubera from Champions of Kamigawa. Foils moving from a dollar twenty-five to four dollars. There was a Zubera deck that I think Seth played on uh, Goldfish uh, stream maybe a few weeks back. Um, that might still be echoes from that event going on. Yeah, it would be kind of odd if that's what it was, but I don't have a better idea for what it could be. Like, wow, where else would that where demand for that card be coming from? I don't know. Um, next up, I'm going to catch two at once here. Lotus Vale and Scorched Ruins, both from Weatherlight. Um, Lotus Vale, 13 to 40. Scorched Ruins, 7 to 25. So uh, over 200% on both of these. 
These are because of a new enchantment in Rivals of Ixalan called Blood Sun, meant to mimic Blood Moon. Blood Sun says, let me get you the uh, correct reading on this. Uh, all land, excuse me, all lands lose all abilities except mana abilities. Uh, it's a three mana enchantment, red enchantment, and it cantrips when it comes up, comes into play. So what this means is that your any land that taps for mana, those still work, but all of the other text doesn't take effect, and that includes stuff that when it comes into play. So for instance, your Lotus Veils and Scorched Ruins, you do not have to pay the very heavy costs associated with putting those into play. So Scorched Ruin is just a land that taps for four colorless mana. There's no catch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in this, a, a better a better Mishra's Workshop's not bad. Yeah, basically. Uh, and also, um, like Valakit doesn't work either. Uh, loses that ability. Amusingly enough, in the way that fetches work with Blood Moon, uh, a fetch land coming into play with Blood Moon in play means it's a mountain. It taps for red, but you can't crack it. Well, a fetch land under Blood Sun can't crack because that's not a mana ability, uh, but it doesn't make it a mountain, so you can't tap it for mana. So Blood Sun actually makes your fetches really bad, even where it just blanks them totally. So it's an interesting card. Um, people are excited about it for EDH because it is going to do things like unlock your uh, stuff like Lotus Vale and Scorch Ruin. It's also going to um, shut down people's utility lands, whether it's Core Haven, Maze of Ith, um, uh, the one that allows you to set creatures, Alchemist Refuge, all that type of stuff. It turns it off. Uh, similarly, it can have a lot. Of, it could have a lot of impacts in modern. Apparently, Blood Moon and Storm is quite popular these days, and being able to run. Um, our fetchless storm with these with these things main deck is pretty awesome because you can turn to these things and lock people's fetch lands out, turn off their um, their functionality while still getting all the mana out of your lands. It doesn't hurt you, and the cantrip is so big of a deal on a card like this. It's also interesting because it unlocks. It actually works better in Tron than against Tron because all of your Tron lands still can get the bonus mana, but it turns off Blink Moth Nexus, Ink Moth Nexus, um, and some of the other lands in Modern that do things. It shuts off the Scry lands out of Ad Nauseum and those types of things. So it's a really, Blood Sun is a really interesting card with a lot of impacts. On the surface, the first thing it has done is cause these lands, which usually have a very high pr price to pay when you put them into play. Uh, they don't have that any longer. So that's where that price jump is coming from. I'm curious whether we're going to end up with this thing being more of a sideboard card or whether we're going to see versions of like Scred Red or White Red Prison, maybe Mono Red um, Tron or Mono Red uh, Eldrazi, um, you know, decks that have a bunch of lands that make extra mana and don't need to fetch, um, potentially could, could try to carve out a niche. Um, but it also leaves me wondering whether Blood Moon is going to get knocked out of the format sometime soon, because I find it very odd that, you know, Blood Moon's not in immediate imminent danger of being banned by most, um, you know, from most perspectives. But to have both Blood Moon and Blood Sun in the format at the same time seems like a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, people, so I did see some people commenting that this might be wizards setting up to move blood moon and maybe even the core sets out of standard or out of modern do you know like oh we're gonna give you blood sun which is kind of like blood moon but not exactly the same that way we can get rid of blood moon which we like a lot less um i don't know it, it, it certainly does what? open up some space for that my other thought by the way is that 
at least at the start, people are definitely going to be trying to run this main deck because it can't trips. That is such a huge fact because it means it's never a totally dead card. Even in the very, very worst matchup where it does literally nothing, it's a three mana cycle, which isn't great. But like you could do a lot worse when there are other games where you can turn to it and lock out every land in somebody's hand. Well, anything that cantrips, you're much more willing to main deck mm-hmm. um, than the alternative, right? right? So uh, the, the card seems very strong. It, it has the potential to have you know wide ranging impacts and also in, impacts the the design space um, around modern because um, you know any kind of fancy land they print in the future, they've got to think about you know whether this thing is just going to be perched to shut it down. Yeah, for sure. It's it'll be curious to see how this plays out. Whether or not this is popular enough that people have to start kind of like. Think when when two sets from now when lands get printed, if people are going, oh, this doesn't work in modern as well as you want it to because there's too much blood sun. Like, will it be enough of the yeah, format that people talk about it? We don't know yet, but it is an interesting card, and I think that we could see it unlock some other uh, interesting strategies or discussions uh, down the road. I mean, and, and it it has many of the same discussions in EDH, right? We, we, we mentioned Scorch Ruins. Lotus Veil was the other one, same position. It's also reserve list. It also moved up quite a bit from 13 to 40. That's almost 200% plus gain. That's, those are both cards I already was holding copies of just on the basis that, hey, these are powerful lands that can be unlocked by certain things. And here we are, you know, less than a year later um, when many people have already speculated on these cards, seeing them pump because, you know, in coordination now in the right EDH deck, you know, this is getting a free Black Lotus that you can reuse every turn or a free four colorless per turn. <laughs> like, those are powerful things if you can get the two card combo going. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an uh, an interesting card, and the there, there's a lot that comes out of it, and uh, you know, with Lotus Veil and Scorchru and, and and that type of thing, plenty of opportunity here. Yeah, and, and those are formats where untapping and retapping lands is the thing that can happen on a regular basis. So, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, next on the list. Uh, next on the list is Fallow Sage, another Murpho card from Lorwyn. This is a creature that. Uh, when it becomes tapped, you may draw a card. So definitely playing into that new Merfolk commander you were talking about earlier where you tap Merfolk to do a thing. Yeah. yeah. So this is uh, just whenever it becomes tapped, draw a card. If you're doing that three or four times a turn with Meryl Commerce in play, that's going to be pretty profitable. Yeah, I mean, we're the MGG finance community is becoming increasingly tuned to EDH opportunities in the mid to long term um, as, you know, relative safe havens for activity. And... You know, if a new good-looking commander comes out, the first thing a lot of us do is go and run the gatherer search to see what cards are going to be affected. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know if this Merfolk will actually be popular. Like I said, Merfolk is not really showing that it's a terribly popular casual tribe, uh, but it doesn't really matter because if you are the only one to own any of these copies of cards, if you're selling one a week, maybe that's still enough. Yep. Uh, cop green seventh foils supposedly moving from two dollars to about eight dollars for something like a 300 percent plus gain um seventh edition foils continuously targeted we've seen the circles of protection which are, are admittedly the best looking ones possibly ever printed um targeted kind of again and again and I, I wonder sometimes whether this is somebody's pet spec that they keep trying to clean up after whenever errant copies re-enter the marketplace yeah, who knows? And, you know, I think the 8th edition or something one showed up as well. I just didn't stick it on the sheet. Uh, so it was definitely targeted, though, because it was two different printings of it that got caught. 
Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be somebody's pet card. It might even, honestly, it might not even be, I'm going to say in, it, malicious, but uh, it, done with the intention of making money. It could just be like somebody really likes collecting foil cops, right? And like is just buying them while they're still cheap because they know they're going to go up in price. And it looks like someone's trying to make a profit because who I don't know who's buying cops and expecting to resell them to anyone other than uh, whatchamacallit, collectors. Well, targeting 7th and 8th edition foils can just be a you know, a medium okay spec uh, theory. The on the basis that they are continuously uh, targeted, that they are difficult sets to pull together, um, and the pressure on them has been pretty consistent over the last three or four years. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what else you got for us? Citadel of Pain uh, foils moving from say a dollar to five for. Something like a 400% gain. Uh, I'm not sure whether somebody flagged a new combo in the set that I haven't picked up on yet, or this is just uh, another case of a old, old foil that is tougher and tougher to come by. Yeah, I got I got nothing for you. If I had it, I would have put it in the sheet. I'm not sure why this is showing up. My best guess is just there's no copies. Um, again, you know, some of these cards, if you're not, you, you, a lot of you guys, you might not be checking TCG every day and kind of getting a feel for the way all this works, but... Um, you know, it's not uncommon to log on and see that there's one copy of a card or two copies of a card. And one guy, the second guy priced his way higher than everyone else's because like, why not? Uh, and then one person buys one copy and suddenly it makes it look like the price quadrupled. So every now and then I think that might be what's going on. According to EDH Rec, there's only like 700 decks that run this card, which is kind of surprising given its its effect on the entire board. This is an enchantment for two and a red that at the end of each player's turn, such a little pain deals X damage to that player where X is the number of untapped lands he or she controls. So it basically forces action all the way around the board. And anybody who doesn't take action is punished, um, which can play into strong control strategies that run a lot of wraths and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um and, and especially if they have a way to uh, make sure that their permanents are tapped. Um, but but wait a second. Can't we all just tap our lands and take no damage these days? Uh, yes, but I think the idea... So let me look it up. Citadel of Pain. Yeah, the idea isn't that you're dealing damage to people. It's that you don't have any lands untapped at the end of your turn. So they can't do anything reactionary during yes. during other people's turns. Yeah, it kind of forces, forces them to be tapped out. Correct. It's like you can either take a bunch of... You, you can choose to take some damage... If you want to hold up your your counter spell or your instant, but right. you know, that interesting. Is I, I would if you had asked me, I would have guessed five thousand decks, not six forty four. But <laughs> uh, what do I know? The, the problem is probably if you're holding like I don't know whether it's a path of exile or a cyclonic rift or whatever. Uh, for the like, it's not like this taps all plans at the end of an op- op- opponent's turns. It just if you have it untapped, you take some damage. So if you have like, uh, if you have to leave mana up for for a path, like you'll take the damage, right, to leave that up. So it's not like mm-hmm. it forces it to be tapped. Yeah. All right. So moving right along, Sea Hunter uh, from Nemesis. This is uh, foils uh, went from three fifty to thirty dollars in theory. I'd be surprised if any sell at that level. I'm curious. I'll, definitely be keeping an eye on it well so, I, I, i'm sorry i'm just gonna tell you i stuck the 30 dollars in there but there was no the the resource said that it went to like some astronomical number which is obviously not real so i put in a guess at what a foil price like a, a foil price jump right like this so it's it sold out at 350 that's what we should know 
it tutors for merfolk. And if merfolk becomes a deck in EDH that is more popular than it has been in the past, on the basis that we have that cool new merfolk general, then this this makes the deck because it lets you pull out key pieces. Yes, yeah. Tutors for good merfolk. Yep. Uh, next up is Righteous Aura. And this is from Mickey Mercadian Masks. Another foil went from pocket change to several dollars. This is an enchantment that you can pay white and two life. And the next time a source would deal damage to you, prevent that damage. I got nothing for you. Why is this suddenly good? Uh, I don't know. Did we miss a combo in Rivals of Ixalan? I'm guessing we did. Yeah. <laughs> if, anybody, if, yeah. if anybody knows what it is, let us know. Yeah. I mean, similar with the next one, Resplendent Mentor, a five mana 2 oh, this, hmm? this one I know. Oh, you know this one? Okay. I was looking and yeah. I couldn't find anything. Yeah, it's with the new card. Uh, it's an infinite combo with Famished Paladin. Famished Paladin is the 3-3 three, three for one and a white in Rivals that is, says Famished Paladin doesn't untap during your untap step. But whenever you gain life, you untap it. And it's a combo with Resplendent Mentor, which says white creatures you control have tap, you gain one life. So you tap it, you gain a life, it untaps it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, okay, so it's an infinite life combo. Okay, so can we just be clear that there's no chance in hell this will work at all and nobody should try? Uh, I guess I-, I thought the same thing when I saw this. <laughs> but in the decks that care about life gain in, in EDH, I suppose... I mean, you have to... The thing about two-card combos in EDH is either your deck has to be chock full of tutors and draw and filtering so that you can convince me you're going you're gonna to see it a fair percentage of the time, or you need to have a each part of your two-card or three-card combo needs to be comboing with other cards that may come up in the deck. And if you don't have that redundancy, then you're just... You're stretching a 100-card singleton deck to around the corner trying to find this one combo that may or may not yeah. ever come up. Uh, I guess, I mean, I guess talking about it in EDH makes a lot more sense than in modern. So, okay. Oh yeah. It's definitely <laughs> an EDH combo. I mean, Splendid mentor is a two, two for five and, and has no impact on the board when it comes in other than white creatures can tap for, for life. Um, and the other one is a three, three for two that doesn't untap naturally. So obviously, you're only going to be playing it in something like, uh, geez, I've, I have this deck built and can't remember the name of it. What's the guy who gains life every turn while he's in the command zone? Aloro. Yeah, it's going to be an Aloro combo, right? That is a jerk. If, uh, if anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably. Like, that seems to be a good place to put it. Right, because Aloro's whole ball game is that losing and gaining life is is driving your whole strategy on the on the table. Um, as a commander, he's only, according to EDH Rec, he's only got 2,600 decks registered, which isn't that much, really. Well, I mean, I think Atraxa has like 4,600. The mm-hmm. gap the gap between, like, it, it, when you look at it, the most played commanders actually, I think, have don't have what you would consider to be a huge amount of decks built underneath them. Again, the most built commander has like 4,600. Yeah, and actually, and to be fair, he's actually fourth on that site, so I'm wrong. Yeah, uh, 2600 is is plenty. Yeah, um, it's more, it's more that EDH is well distributed, uh, as as opposed to the fact that um, he's not popular. I guess we're just used to being excited about higher numbers because the cards that are the most worthwhile as specs are multi general cards uh, or multi commander cards. 
you don't want to be picking the cards that are only good in Brea or even Brea herself per se. Um, that's a spec I went in on that hasn't really hasn't advanced as quickly as I had hoped. Um, although it's weird because just as a, a sidebar here, Atraxa was a very good spec <laughs> that I was in on less than $10 and now goes for like 28. Brea on the other hand is still stuck at six bucks. Go figure. Yeah. I, I ran into that as well. Um, yeah. And it's, I actually kind of wonder sometimes if there's not some sort of disparity with the data uh, simply because you have eternal witnesses, which is in like 90,000 X or, you know, 20,000, some ludicrously high number, but then the most popular general with green in it has like 4,000 X. It's like, I don't understand. Are there, is it, is the commander play that distributed? I don't know. Uh, but I, it does make me wonder at least. Yeah. Eternal witness is 48,000 decks. Yeah. And the, and the most, yeah. So like, I kind of wonder if there's something else going on, like maybe there's an issue with the data or maybe what? not. What? No, I see what you're saying because if you look at the top 20 commanders associated with eternal witness and add it all up, you don't get anywhere close to 48,000. In fact, you don't even top 12,000. So there's definitely something about the data that doesn't quite sync. Yep. All right. Um, so let's see. That's all of our cards for the week on our top movers page. Uh, let's get into cards to watch. What are you starting us off with this week? So today, and only today is my understanding, there was an event at LGSs around the world called the uh, Open House, which is a kind of invite for new-ish players to come in, get a promo card, and play um, uh, a form, a core format. Um, I think it was standard, um, but I could be mistaken. It might have been draft or sealed. Um, and today, the promo was a very lovely uh, full art Silver Gill Adept coming in at a time where blue and blue-green Merfolk deck are looking increasingly real for modern um if you weren't convinced before um they've gotten enough tools now that i feel pretty confident that they're going to be you know in that top 10 top 15 decks in modern for quite some time and their and edh decks uh, for merfolk, merfolk are looking that much more uh, viable with all the new tools so the silver gap gill adept promos um i managed to snag eight of the russian ones at 1250 each today and i think that was a very uh, tight, tight buy um, because the Japanese ones, the lowest price I can find is closer to 20, I believe, uh, a copy. So I would keep your eye out for both the Japanese and the Russian ones, especially if you can score them under 20 bucks, um, under 15, even better. The thing is that this is clearly the best Silver Gale Adept, um, in terms of looks anyway. Um, there are always going to be people that prefer original pack foils and maybe original Russian pack foil is like the grail or something for Corbin Hostler. Um, but plenty of people on price point alone will settle for these under $50 at some point. And I think that um, with Merfolk, Merfolk being reinforced as a tribe across multiple formats um, and this card being kind of an auto include, no matter which format you're playing, the fact that this is just a card that comes in and draws you a card um, just kind of guarantees that it's going to make the deck. Yeah, in I would have said that this was a good choice, even if Merfolk weren't emerging as a tribe recently pushed by Wizards simply by virtue of the it's already popular as a card and as a tribe in competitive formats, and it's a sweet looking promo. The fact that Wizards is also pushing Merfolk uh, in other formats at the same time makes this even more appealing. So twelve or what dollars or whatever you paid for those Russian ones is absurd. Because I think you're right, like. People will still pay 
$70 for the pack boil Lorman ones. But for the most part, people would much rather pay less money for this, especially I think I kind of wonder if there's sort of like a new blood type thing who doesn't care about pack foils quite as much. Um, somebody who is picking up Merfolk today with all the Ixalan stuff that a year from now is building modern Merfolk and wants to make it look awesome. Is that player going to care about Lorwyn pack foil silver gold ups if they were uh, a toddler when it came out? Like if you didn't play in Lorwyn, are you really going to care about having a pack foil or are you going to like the promo more because it looks cooler and you remember getting it yourself? And when the most pimp edition of something or, you know, the most bling edition of something is is something that you can't get your hands on anyway, like you can't find for foil Russian silver gill adept, even if you wanted to um, from original Lauren. So or if you could, the price is yeah. just going to be astronomical. So, you know, as you said, the, the price point is going to be a much is going to strongly overwhelm the, you know, most bling uh, rankings every time. Like if you have to choose between the twenty thousand dollar lotus and the four thousand dollar lotus, trust me, your first lotus will be the four thousand dollar lotus. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um. I think it's a good choice. Uh. I will be surprised if you do not make money on those copies you picked up. <laughs> I mean, I think it, I'm not a. I haven't a hundred percent background checked to make sure that these aren't coming out again at some other point this year. Mm-hmm. If they do, that we can suspect. But if it was a one day thing and no one's going to see these again ever again, this is hot. Yeah, I do kind of wonder if it's one of those things where Wizards, it seems like Wizards is less likely to tell you that things aren't coming out again anymore. Like things come out and you think that that's it. Uh, and then it turns out that they release more later. It feels like they do that more often than they used to. But well, I mean, I, I was having a, a talk with a vendor the other day. And they were talking about how, oh, they're just going to reprint the unstable uh, foil lands. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not happening. They, they don't need to do that because art is not that expensive for them. So as long as the product is um, and keep in mind that a lot of this art that ends up on these like promos and so forth isn't commissioned just for them per se. It comes out of a portfolio of art that was commissioned for the sets that they're related to. And they're pulling something that out of, out of the, like that they didn't use yet that didn't quite match the art style they were going for or whatever. And that the art director left on the shelf and they've already paid for it. So um, because of that, I don't think that you are likely in many, many of these cases. And I think you'll be hard pressed to find examples where when they could have reused something from a recent uh, printing they've done that instead of just do something again so the concept of full art foil lands for instance you're going to see over and over again but the exact art being used not so much okay yeah which seems a good read to me anyways um i mean one thing to point out in terms of my illusion delusions that silvergill adept is a major edh card that has yet to be proven because it's only in like a few hundred decks because there hasn't been a strong reason to play Merfolk other than Sig River Guide, right? So, and and I guess there's uh, Thrasios, Triton Hero is a Merfolk, and so is Jory N, but those decks aren't Merfolk focused. Those are cards that have, commanders that happen to be Merfolk that do not encourage you to build Merfolk decks. Yeah. So, it really depends on whether uh, Kumena or whatever um, from the from the new set is is embraced as a popular commander. Well, Merfolk, I think, in modern has had the problem of not having sufficient um, 
not having in enough EDH. playables. Yeah, in EDH, just not having enough playable cards of the tribe. Uh, so Ixalan adding a bunch more certainly helps, uh, as well as tossing you another commander or two, right? Well, and anytime your commander breaks a tribe out of its primary color, mm-hmm. it opens up so many opportunities. So now that Merfolk is 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 blue and green, now your commander deck is much less monodimensional. Yes, agreed completely. Um, okay, so let me get to my first card this week. Let me preface this by saying we got an article over on Daily Magic this week, and I, I don't recall who it was by, but they were talking about energy, and they framed it in a way that made energy sound very similar to affinity uh, when it was in standard and affinity was banned. Uh, A good chunk of it was banned. Well, it was in standard. So some players read that article as them setting up banning energy in standard, whether it's a tune with aether long toss cub. I'm not sure. Um, I know that the land whose name escapes me at the moment is also very important to the strategy. Aether hub. Aether hub. Yeah. Is that one? Okay. So, if they ban energy cards from energy and standard, which they could do. Remember, we've seen, what is it now? Three separate ban incidents in standard in the last three years, two, two and two years, something like that. So they've definitely gone to that well a couple times. At the very least, uh, if they do it again, they're basically setting a bit of a precedent to not be, not, not expect them to not do it, which might actually work in their favor. But in any case, if they do ban cards from standard, it's obviously from energy, it's going to change standard up quite a bit. So the question is, where do you go from there? Uh, That is a very complex question. It is difficult to understand what decks are bad in a format because another one is good. It's usually not terribly clear cut and you kind of need the format to mature to figure it out. Every now and then there's a card that you can see getting better because uh, some strategy went away. Um, But in this case, I don't see, I don't personally see that. I'm sure others do it or at least I think they do. But in any case, I was looking through some standard stuff and trying to look for powerful cards that do see play, but not nearly as much as you would think they should. And I stumbled on Champion of Wits. And I know that we've I've talked about this before, and other people have too. When the card was originally revealed, and our devastation is being uh, a very powerful card, and it came out swinging like at the first Pro Tour, but then hasn't really broken out. And beyond that, because of energy, and Champion of Wits is like a dollar fifty to two dollars right now. Uh, meanwhile, Search for Ascanta, two mana blue enchantment has gotten very popular. It's probably one of the best cards in standard. Champion of Wits synergizes with Search for Ascanta very well um, because Champion of Wits helps fuel your graveyard uh, to flip Search for Ascanta if that's what you're looking for. So that works well. And Search for Ascanta can also dump a Champion of Wits, I think, into your graveyard, right? Search for Ascanta does that. Uh, let me double check and you may put it into your graveyard. So you can actually late in the game, you can use your search to dump a champion and then immediately embalm it or whatever the term is on uh, eternalize, eternalize it. it and bring it back right away. So like you, they kind of work with each other. So I think champion of wits, if energy is banned in standard could be one of the cards that benefits well from that. If it does, I see the price jumping up to probably eight to $10. If like, if energy's banned and the breakout deck is like a search for us contra champion of wits, blue white strategy or blue something strategy champion could skyrocket to be the best card in our devastation. Uh, well actually scarab God is in that set. So second best. So no promises. I'm just kind of like throwing the feelers out there. Like kind of think this is where I would start and. I encourage you to kind of consider what other what else might be out there. The best way to figure this out is going to be able is going to be to listen to people who play standard professionally and see what they have to say, and then keep an eye on those. 
All of this said, keep in mind, Standard has been pretty rough for finance for like the last two years. So I'm not exactly clear how this will play out. Uh, I know that we don't have, there was invocations in Amonkhet block. So like that doesn't help, right? Like it, it kind of, there's still that ceiling on the card prices. So uh, I don't know. I, I think it's worth keeping an eye on, but this is hardly my most full-throated endorsement. There's a whole bunch of analysis to unpack around around this pick, actually. I mean, when we say that this might get somewhere, what we're really saying is that Blue-White Gift might be one of the best decks if energy strategies fall off the table. Um, one of the things to consider there is what percentage of the playing population gravitates to relatively technical control-type strategies. Those specs always give me pause more than something that might be required in a, in a straightforward aggro deck, just because I believe there are more mediocre players than there are strong players that benefit from technical deck styles. Yeah, by um, definition, right? The, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, it's nice that Champion of Wits is typically a four-of in that deck, um, and... It's less nice that there's a ton of inventory of it online. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually I actually own zero copies of this, and I'm going to pick up a playset at this price on your recommendation, not as a spec, but just because I think it's a cool card um, that's going to find its way into a bunch of casual or and or EDH decks at some point. Like I'll I'll find a use. It's the kind of thing that is relatively unique and that I'd like to have lying around. Um, the ability to filter cards off the top and so forth, and and the fact that it's you get to do it another time um, has a bunch of cool interactions in multiple formats. Um, but standard, as you said, has been such a uh, such a roll of the dice from a financial perspective compared to other opportunities because um, it's been so unpredictable. And Wizards is trapped in this kind of like catch 22 with standard right now, because as you said, they've already done a, a couple of different bannings um, related to Smuggler's Copter and a few other cards. And then later Felidar Guardian, Sahili Rai problems. And the year before that, we had... Um, you know, Eldrazi problems and Emrakul was part of the the banning the previous fall. The, the whole thing has been so rocky for standard players. And there's only so many times you can piss people off before you push them out of the format entirely. I mean, I had people, I was talking about this topic of whether, um, you know, Seth had posted something about energy and what would happen if it was banned. And I said something on Twitter, like, um, you know, the, they can't leave it you know, as is given what we've seen so far, there's nothing in rivals that leads me to believe that energy would be challenged. There's nothing that actually tackles energy specifically. I mean, solemnity wasn't in theory, an anti um, energy card that didn't really do enough. Um, It looked like it might be. Yeah. I mean, it looked like it might be the the checkmate against energy, but it just wasn't because it doesn't have enough presence on the board to overcome what they're trying to do. And um, I don't see anything in Rivals and nobody that I've seen talking about it has has thought any different that would say that that energy won't continue to dominate. And a lot of people, pros included, have been saying about how standard is boring. They were talking about it on the SCG Modern Tournament today about how nobody wanted to talk about or look at standard deck lists, etc. And pros struggling to find article topics in, in the wake of that situation. So what does Wizards do? I mean, you're in a situation where if you ban something again, you piss a bunch of people off and potentially injure the format. But if you don't, and energy stays where it's at, then you go, then people won't play the format because it's boring because they don't want to have to play to shift into energy. And it also hurts new set sales because if you don't need the cards in a new set, because energy is still the best strategy, then you may not buy as much of rivals of Ixalan as, as you intended. And so, you know, I think champions with 
Champion of Wits is an interesting pick. If it was a mythic, I'd like it a lot more than if it's a rare. At $1.50, even if it starts to dominate in the format, one of the things I'd be looking at is, is it a multi-deck staple or is it a single deck staple? And how dominant does that deck need to be to get it to $8? I'd feel much more comfortable saying that it's going to go from $1.50 to $4 in the case that it becomes one of the top three decks in the format. And I think you and I both know that that's, that's not our ideal. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what you said is, is true. I think part of what's appealing, one of the one of the reasons I can be excited about it, well, excited is a strong word, I can be okay with it, is that um, Search for Iskanta and Champion of Wits is a very, uh, very flexible pairing, I think, right? Like, you can play that in blue-white approach. You can play that in a blue-black control. You can even play that in a salt line mid-range strategy. Uh, I mean, they both, like, are do well in control strategies, but are not limited to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, everything you said is true. So it's, you know, it, it, it's... There's possibility there, but I want to stress more so than anything that it is almost designed just to get you thinking about what may occur and less about Champion of Wits as the exact card you should care about specifically. Well, and along that, along those lines, it's probably helpful to point out that the other four of in that deck is Angel of Invention, which is a mythic. Yeah. And, and even though it's rotating next fall, uh, so is everything from you know, the, the year that came after Kaladesh, which includes the Hour of Devastation stuff. And uh, so if Angel of Invention becomes a, a de facto four of, then it could go from its current price of $6 to say 10 or 12. Yeah, I mean, I certainly thought about it. And I was trying to decide if I liked Angel of Invention more than I liked Champion of Wits. Um, I mean, I guess it being Kaladesh scared me off a little bit, but I don't know how much that matters. So I think that's a really good one to consider. The other one I thought about was Torrential Gear Hulk. Right, like that card is probably like in a vacuum the most powerful standard card or close to it, um, and we haven't seen too much of that. It still floats around, but not as much as we anyone would have expected as much. So that's another one that could pop up. So if we're not worried about like the set that it came from, then that seems like a good choice too. These are all things you guys can be thinking about and trying to keep an eye on and seeing what pros are writing about if this event comes to pass, and that is a huge if. Yeah, I, I think the the takeaway there is we we both agree that standard is a risky proposition until we see how things play out with this ban list. Yeah, I mean, I just it feels uh, it feels rough like week in and week out to essentially only be talking about EDH, and it's like it's not that we ignore the other formats, and I just don't want to don't want to like give you guys bad advice, right? Like even if it feels like we're avoiding standard, but there's a reason. Well, for it's that. In, it's interesting because the upcoming pro tour is modern, right? Not not standard. Uh, so is it? so. So they're not, yeah. So they're not strongly motivated to um, to fix standard for that, and they made a big point of saying that they weren't going to fix the modern to do anything to the modern ban list at this upcoming ban list change. Right? Mm-hmm. They're going to wait till the six week period after the modern pro tour to decide whether to do anything. And I suspect that if if things go as planned for the modern pro tour, which is that it's going to be a relatively diverse format. Um, all indicators say that it will be. There's nothing like too broken happening in modern right now. Probably the most overbearing decks are Lantern Control, Tron, and Blue Red Storm, but they're all coming from different angles, and there's no guarantee that any one of them is going to be, you know, going to be able to run the gauntlet. I mean, that's really what seems to determine what's happening in modern right now. Is did you get lucky by not encountering the decks that shut you down? Um, and how well do you, if you know how to play your deck really well, and it's any of the top 12, 15 decks in the format, you got a solid shot if your gauntlet turns out favorably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And, and, and as a result, I don't actually think anything's going to get banned in modern as a priority ban. Um, the only banning, you know, as we said earlier, is that or the, the most likely ban um, would be to me them just saying, hey, we're going to shake things up. I just don't see the impetus to do that. Uh, no, no, I, you're, you're correct. If, if they were going to get, I don't know, it's hard to say, right? Like maybe they're not making this decision based on the optics on the pro tour. Maybe they're basing it on, they want to push more numbers into F and M. So like they're not basing it around the pro tour schedule. I, I don't have that information either. And we can, even if we were to look back at past decisions and try and tie it to that, uh, as a, as evidence for how they may make that decision, it's still, I feel like they change their mind on this stuff just often enough that it's never more than a roughly educated guess as to figuring out what they may or might not want to do. Yeah. All right. So my next pick of the week, and this is, I'm only, I've only got two that I really love this week. Growing rights of Itlamok buy a box promo foils. And um, this is a, a paired pick to the search for as Kanta one that I pointed out last week, which I think is a, a higher priority. Um, but these are floating. You can get these lower than $20 right now in TCG player. Um, and I think long-term in EDH, you're going to want to have at least one of these in your collection. Um, the, the map foils, if you haven't held them in hand, as I said last week are stunning. They really, really look great. Um, and they, it, and it's really funny to me that these were scheduled clearly to be masterpieces and then they weren't. And because they're not masterpieces, there's significantly less of them in the market than there would have been otherwise. And, and especially the you know Japanese versions that I've been trying to track down, that would be an even higher priority if you can get your hands on them anywhere south of forty bucks. I think that's going to be like a huge, a really good long term hold. Um, and even some of the like the lower end ones, I posted some pictures of some Japanese foil primal uh, amulet. That's the one that uh, reduces the cost of your instance and sorceries, and then um, does something on the backside that I, I forget. Um, and the compass and a couple of the other like artifacts that flip into useful things in EDH. Um, if you can track, track down the buy a box versions in Japanese, awesome. If you can only get your hands on English foils or only one English foils, that's still a solid pick because a couple years down the road, people are going to realize there just isn't that much of this stuff floating around. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is really cool. Uh, I think the card is awesome looking. I thought it was a good choice last week when you talked about it, I think this one, it, you know, when you're talking about service content, I think growing rights is also really good too. Um, you know, guys cradle does not need me to sing its praises. Uh, clearly a very powerful card. I mean, I, I placed a little bet with, with Jason Elt a while ago that there would be 5,000 decks by the springtime. Let's call that April or May of 2018 running this on EDH rec. So far there's only a thousand. So, um, the, the popularity of this may be, I may be overestimating it. Um, but when I ran a survey on Twitter last week asking people which of the flip cards they would prioritize for the ADH collections, it was clearly search and rights um, at the top of the heap. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the adaption of these cards on and how it shows up on EDH truck is uh, you would need to do some real data analysis to make sense of it and, all, you know, to figure out how accurate it is and, and, and what real life what it means if, if I don't know, I, I, I'm curious about how that actually ends up looking. What's the, what's the fastest card has ever gone to 5,000 copies on EDA truck? I don't know, uh, but it is a very powerful card. And yeah, 20 bucks for foreign lang, you know, tw- 20 bucks for these is good. 40 bucks for Russian and Japanese is probably solid too. Cause I imagine those will be over a hundred. Well, the, the, there's no oh. Russian as far as, and, and in fact, when I point, when I posted pictures of my Japanese buy boxes, people didn't even realize those exist. I didn't realize they existed till I like stumbled across them on Harayuya while I was just looking for the English versions. So 
my guess is that there are only English and Japanese versions. Um, and, you know, that makes the Japanese ones especially special because in many other cases, for instance, with the Silver Gill Adepts, they were printed in multiple languages. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Cool looking card, too. Yep. Okay. Uh, my second card this week is Vampire Hexmage. I'm looking at foils, whether from Zendikar or Conspiracy 2. Zendikar is probably a better choice uh, if you can get them at the same price. But they seem to be available right around 8 to $10. Um, supply on either set, Zendikar and Conspiracy, is pretty low. And surprisingly, there's not uh, much of a price difference between them. Kind of caught me by surprise. I figured the Conspiracy 2 ones or Conspiracy, one of the sets would be more would be cheaper and more plentiful than the Zendikar one, but not by much. Um, but Vampire Hexmage is it's in 4,000 decks on EDH. Vampires are getting a lot of attention again, uh, you know, along with um, dinosaurs and merfolk. They're one of the big tribes in Ixalance. You're getting a lot of new vampire tools. Edgar Markov has been really popular on EDH rec for weeks now as a top general. Uh, so it's a popular deck a popular tribe in edh getting more popular getting more tools has a solid play um, pattern in the format as it is also shows up in legacy um, all the time and you'll every now and then you'll find in modern not too often but people get clever uh, and you could always see something get printed that pushes it into modern more so overall it's a pretty useful card um, popular has a lot of different applications and price and foils are like eight to ten bucks which just seems very cheap to me given all of that um, so I think you're pretty, it's a pretty clean ride up to 20. I would imagine I wouldn't, you know, I, I would have not been batted an eye if you told me foil hex mages were $20 or more, even 25. Uh, and we've seen some other premium uncommon foils like this for creatures of this nature hit some pretty nutty prices. So I think there's uh, definitely some possibility here. There's a lot of different angles to this card. And as you pointed out, there's almost no inventory. Like I, I'm seeing two near mint copies for the newer version, which is from Conspiracy. Um, and then the Zendikar version, like six or seven copies left on, on TCG. It's ripe, it's ripe for a buyout. I mean, the only question becomes as an uncommon, um, it's particularly vulnerable to a reprint um, because, you know, foil uncommons are not, are not going to be uncommon um, if it gets a reprint. And in a set like M25, in a year where they're already printing vampires, I could see them stuff this in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's possible, right? Like I'm not discounting that as a possibility. Yeah. One of, one of, one of our many picks recently that are highly contingent on not getting reprinted in M25. Yeah, exactly. Cause I'm not worried about a year from now. You just, you only need about six months of like low inventory breathing space to, for this to hit the 20 price point you're looking at. Um, and then it's like that it's a slow bleed situation. This is not one of those cards you want to be holding 30 copies of, but because people are going to, you know, make sometimes buy them as a play set and sometimes as singles. So you want to, you might want to be holding one, two, maybe three play sets and expect to take a year or so to get rid of them all. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you might be able to do one every week, every other week if you're lucky. Uh, but yeah, I would not be going in at 30, 40 copies, but then again, you're not going to find 30 or 40 copies anyways. All right, so moving right along to our metagame we can review. We've got SCG Colorado actually just finishing up as we're recording this. This is Sunday night. Um, but we do know what the top eight decks are. We don't know exactly who's going to win this thing. But we know that the top four includes Blue Red Gift Storm, Grixis Death Shadow, two Jeskai Control decks. And then rounding out the top eight, we have a Green White Company deck, Kiki Moon, um, a Humans deck, and a Scred Red. So again, a fairly diverse modern format. Um 
nothing really like too exciting here. I mean, Scred Red is always this kind of like outsider deck that shows up in top eight every few months. Um, Humans seems to be setting up shop as one of the uh, top uh, aggro decks in the format. Certainly seeing more of it around than we're seeing even Affinity or Infect these days. Um, I noticed in Jeskai Control, both co- both versions uh, or both lists were almost identical. They were both running two Search for Azkanta, a Torrential Gear Hulk, and a copy of Secure the Waste. Um, unfortunately, onesie twosies is not as exciting as threesie foursies. Um, in the green-white company deck, they were, again, running four copies of uh, Courser of Crifix, a card that Todd Anderson was making popular uh, last year and seems to have been picked up by most people that are on company decks these days. Over in the uh, the Scred Red deck, there's probably the most interesting card, the highest number of interesting cards, but again, a deck that, um, despite its uh, its its ability to hang with the big boys, not too many people seem to be running it. So... If this was to get more popular, I'd certainly be interested in some of the cards in the in the list, which include uh, Eternal Scourge, Storm, three copies of Stormbreath Dragon, three copies of Pia and Kieran Nalar, um, two copies of Chandra Torch of Defiance, four copies of Koth of the Hammer, and four Blood Moon. Leaves me wondering whether this deck wants to run Blood Sun when the time comes. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. Uh, you know, which of these decks that could fit into. Um, Scred Red is definitely a possibility. The Kiki Moon, maybe, uh, depending on what they're using Blood Moon to fight in that strategy. Yeah. Uh, the Humans decks, I've said this before, there's tons of specs in those decks. Some of them have already popped significantly in foils. Um, worth keeping an eye on the Humans list because things that move uh, that haven't moved yet, um, as if this deck looks like it's going to be around for a while and isn't easily uh, countered, then... Uh, you know, given the disruptive elements that are built into it, uh, it's going to be a deck that will probably contribute a couple more spikes in the in the calendar year. It's already got a lot more uh, sustainability than I would have expected at the outset, or at least um, I should say I was skeptical at first, as you should be, and I've been pleasantly surprised to see how well it's it's managed to keep up. So uh, a lot of those specs are definitely a lot more live than I might have considered them, uh, you know, two months ago. Mm-hmm. I also all right. Was, so let's talk. Oh, sorry. I want to point out uh, my Go buddies ahead. were playing in, uh, in GP Santa Clara, and they just barely missed top eight. But the, their modern player was on blue white and also running uh, Church for Conte. He had two in his main deck, and he uh, he really likes them. I don't know if he's been planning on moving up to four or not, but the card definitely has uh, a pretty reasonable, pretty impressive play profile in modern at this point, uh, with a lot of different players after it. Um, so I don't, I could see that slowly working its way up to four copies. Honestly, um, it might be one of those cards where you're just always happy to draw it. Uh, you don't really mind getting rid of them. Um, so I don't know that could be, uh, that could slowly work its way up there. Yeah. All right. So we're going to, as our topic of the week, uh, the full spoiler for rivals of Ixalan is upon us and we're going to dive in and flag some early, uh, some early looks at some cards that have piqued our interest that we think are probably going to end up being specs. Although I think we can both agree, likely not at the pre-order uh, ask prices over on Star City. Yeah, the prices on this are nuts. And I mean, I think we've kind of noticed that more so recently, the last couple of sets. Um, I've found myself pre-ordering w- way fewer cards than I had in the past uh, from a speculative position. Even from a, I would like to own this position. Um, they're just not as... The prices are just too high, right? Like it's not a smart idea. There, Star City is sucking all the air out of the room when it comes to trying to um, guess at what these prices could be. 
So, which is unfortunate. And they have missed things over the course of the last year or so that have made people money. Um, there, there have been cards in standard that, that were not flagged early enough um, that later became a big deal. I mean, one of the, one of the things, uh, Ether, sorry, uh, what was the one that was banned? Uh, the one that tapped and pulled Emrakul's off the top? Uh, tapped and pulled Emrakul's off the top. The artifact from Kaladesh that got banned. In EDH? Uh, Etherworks Marvel. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, Marvel was available very low pre-order. It was an example of a card that was underestimated at first glance. People just figured, like, the chance of getting what you wanted was so low and generating that much energy was going to be too hard. But when they actually started testing, they found out none of, neither of those things was true. Yeah. Uh, whoops, a tune with Aether is good enough. <laughs> All right, so cards that have caught our eye. How about Immortal Sun? Yeah, this one's pretty cool. Uh, this is the card that... Where did I put it? That uh, you can't activate Planeswalker's abilities. Uh, you draw an additional card every turn. Spells cost one loss less to cast, and creatures you control get 1-1. One, one. There's basically not a deck in EDH that isn't interested in at least part of this. Yeah, and I, I think the Planeswalker loyalty abilities is the least interesting, but if you run you're running into a meta where someone's running a tracks of Planeswalkers all the time, um, this is the kind of card that helps out uh, in incidentally as it does a bunch of other things well and the thing i like about this is the open-ended synergy it's good in spells decks it's good in creatures decks it's even better if you're running both um and bonus cards is always good now there's a lot of competition in the four to six mana slot for cards that do some of these things already you know mirari's wake type cards and so forth um you know, enchantments and artifacts that that either bump your mana up or double your mana or make your creatures bigger and all of that other stuff. Um, and there's only so many that can be, you know, achieve a high level of popularity, however. And and there's also the fact that Star City wants $30 for the foil mythics um, of this card. That's not the price you want to be buying this at. You want to wait for this to do nothing in standard. And then in early summer, you want to be targeting these at like 6 to $10 or something for the foils. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I almost, without exception, I think I'm just going to say you should not be paying Star City pre-order prices for any of these cards. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about Blood Sun a little bit earlier. Foils for that are going for 40 bucks. I think we can both agree that that's got a future um, and that we don't want to pay 40 It's a It's a rare, not a mythic, so we're targeting $10 foils or something. Yeah, sounds reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about Atali Primal Storm? This is probably the card I'm the most excited to get on the table in EDH and do disastrous things with. This is the Elder uh, Dinosaur. Um, so, And by the way, did you notice that because there's now Elder Dinosaurs, EDH still works? <laughs> like El- Elder Dragon Highlander, Elder Dinosaur Highlander. I, they were talking about it on the command zone, and I was like, that's cute. Oh, they should have uh, put... Did they? We can go back to Conspiracy, or not Conspiracy, Unglued, which had jackasses right elder donkey highlander uh-huh exactly so um this is a six six for six uh dinosaur not that exciting um but whenever he attacks you exile the top card of all players libraries and you can cast any of them without paying any mana costs so the kind of swings that you can make when you drop this into a lightning greaves um are going to be pretty ugly and are going to generate many funny stories uh around local kitchen tables with beers in play yeah that uh certainly is capable of doing a great deal even at a just a four-player game you're gonna drop it swing 
three players are going to flip cards. Well, you know, like one of them is going to be a rise of the dark realms and you're just going to win the game on the spot, or you're going to cast somebody's sun Titan, which is going to get back your thing or other. And it's, it's going to do a lot. You know, it's, it's a type of card that's essentially a bulk rare and standard, but like is really cool in a lot of EDH decks. Yeah. And it, it's too bad. A that Kali of the vast doesn't put in uh, dinosaurs and, and B that I don't think you a- actually trigger it even if it did, because she put something into your hand tapped and attacking, right? Yes, correct. So that would skip the step where this would trigger? Yeah. That's too bad. I'd really like to Kali a, a tally into play. That would be nice. I would imagine. <laughs> All right. So the other thing that caught my eye that I was asking Collins Mullen about was Dire Fleet Daredevil in Modern Humans. This is the new human pirate 2-1 first strike for one and a red. And when it enters the battlefield, you can exile target instant or sorcery card from an opponent's graveyard. And you can cast that uh, and you can spend any mana to cast it. So it's basically like a Snapcaster mage for the opponent's graveyard, but it trades flash for first strike. Um, That is assuming you don't have an Ether Vial in play. And has some upside if you do have another violent play versus a snapcaster on the basis that you can run it in humans where normally you can't run snapcaster because you don't have enough instance, but you're in a format where your opponents are almost certainly to have something interesting in the graveyard, path to exile, serum visions, uh, lightning bolt, fatal, fatal push, the backside of a lingering souls, etc. maybe a cryptic command and putting the daredevil into play on the end of their turn with the other vial might really mess with their game plan and against control decks might force them to, to then snap and activate the same card in response just to protect you from doing it which then would leave them exposed on your turn to whatever shenanigans you're trying to get up, up get up to with your board presence yeah this guy is really nifty and could end up being quite effective in the deck uh i don't know I it's I imagine this is one of those cards. It's really difficult to figure out how good it is until you just sit there and grind games with it to get a feel for like how often you're actually stealing your opponent's instance and sorceries and making good use of them. And I can see it being never or it's always good and impressed constantly. It's tricky because like Merfolk, the human stack is pretty tight. Um, there's not like a, it's not an obvious four of slot. This would this would go into even if it's like decent. Collins seemed to think it was a I will test it and a maybe. Um, definitely not a oh that's an auto four right. of. So the fact that they want twenty five for the foils is way outside my target range. I want this to come down to six to eight dollar foils um, uh, on the basis that it's doing nothing nowhere else you know a couple months from now and then maybe I'll grab it. I, I feel like it's the kind of card I'm going to want to mess around with anyway so i'll probably pick up a playset at least for that purpose um i just love the idea idea of maybe trying to figure out some other version of a deck that runs this and snapcaster and dark confidant or something and a bunch of you know 50 50 blend between humans and instance and then you're messing with your you're getting double usage off your instance and theirs i don't know i have no idea if that could ever get there but certainly the kind of nonsense i'd try to try to fool around with it's a really cool card, uh, but I, it, it, it's hard to know, right? Like I just, I, I can't even conjecture whether it's going to be good or not without trying. Um, I do think even six or eight dollar foils are, I don't know that like maybe, maybe that's good enough. I mean, all the modern specs that have done well for me have been most of them foil rares that end up as four ofs that people underestimated at first glance, sometimes mythics, but often rares. 
And we're talking about cards like Hooligan's Command foils and Collected Company foils and so forth. So, and I know that my average in on those is usually in the six to ten dollar range, and my average out is twenty to thirty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's where I want to be. But it's also worth pointing out that re- two red two drops that provide virtual card advantage um, have failed <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> They've tried to print the red dark confidant a couple of times now. This is probably the closest they've come to making something truly interesting. It's well, nice. Just, it's not the Red Dark Confine. It's the Red Snapcaster Mage, which they also tried with what was like Abbot of Carol Keep, right? Well, I mean, it, it's not that it's a, it's yeah, closer to Snapcaster. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just the Red 2 drop, right? That they've tried to print a few times now that hasn't really clicked. I mean, you can argue that Eidolon of the Great Revel is is the one that matters. Um, but anyway, the, the point is Daredevil has a, has a shot, but it, its future is not assured. Yeah, yeah, it's it's nifty. It's, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. So um, talk to me about Azora's Gateway. Uh, Azora's Gateway is a card that I thought was the most interesting. Uh, this really jumped out at me, given uh, how effective it is. And if I get this stupid thing to work, uh, Azora's Gateway is the artifact that you pay one, draw draw a card, and then exile a card. Uh, and then if cards with five or more different converted mana costs have been exiled with uh, Azor's Gateway you gain five life and then flip the card over. So this requires five separate activations and each card has to have a different mana cost in order for it to trigger. However, on the backside, you get a land that taps for mana equal to the amount of life you have. So this is on the backside better than Gaius Cradle. Any land ever? Yeah, I mean, I it's better than every land ever printed, I think, essentially. In, in, in EDH, once it's flipped, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, keep in mind, that if you're at your starting life total, that means this land taps for 40 mana. Uh, I don't know about you, but my <laughs> Gaius Cradles, even on their best days, do not usually manage that. Now, the question is how much work goes into it. It requires five separate triggers, which is not insignificant. I do like that it only costs two mana. That helps quite a bit um, because it, it's not like this is a four or five mana artifact that's coming down really late that you have to pay a lot for and then takes forever to get going. You can get it down quick in those first turns of the game, especially in a four-player game, tends to be kind of quiet. Everyone's just trying to develop their board. So if this comes down on turn two, you definitely can run away with it. Hitting the five different cards with different mana costs probably isn't too difficult. Um, the harder part is probably going to be choosing cards that you're willing to get rid of. Um, and you also have to worry about your opponent blowing it up when you get the four counters. So there's definitely some concern. Now, maybe you're going to figure out a trick that allows you to just flip this instantly. Um, maybe you march, what is it? March of the machines along with, uh, shoot, what's his name? Uh, Ix, not Ixalan, not Ixador. Uh, one of the, cre- there's a creature that like turns every other creature face down. So you could like flip this without actually paying its cost. You could come up with a clever way to flip it. If there's an easy way to do that, uh, that would make be a real big deal for sure. Um, but in general, this is just a really powerful card that's going to be in- absurd in almost every EDH deck. Uh, and I get the feeling that it's probably generally worth it as well. Um, so this is one I've got my eye on for foils. It's $30 foils on Star City. So clearly they're also thinking the same thing I am. Uh, but I'm happy to let this crater over the next couple of months uh and then start picking them up on the cheap down the road um i'm not sure this is in every edh deck i think like the setup is pretty extreme and i think that you really need it to dovetail into a situation where you have the components to untap it a bunch of times in the same turn so that 
it's not lying out there exposed doing nothing for too long. It would be much more flexible if it discarded the cards. Like if it was discarding cards from your hand to your graveyard, that might play into some graveyard recursion strategies that would make it more useful just in the process of moving cards around. But because it moves them into exile, you got to work harder to get any value out of that. That's prob- um, there are probably some- why it doesn't put them in the discard. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there, there is a, there are cards that can set this up, given that you have the engine ready on the table to exploit the like multi taps per turn. For instance, Seasons Past, the mythic out of uh, Shadows Over Innistrad, returns any number of cards with different converted mana costs from your graveyard to your hand. So if you were already set up to be able to get the five activations or the last few all going at the same time, Seasons Past would make sure you had the right stuff in your hand to get it done. True. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the power level is undeniable. I think lots of people are going to try to make it work. I think they're going to be largely disappointed. And I think that that's a theme that we see running through most of the flip cards in Rivals as opposed to um, the original Ixalan set. The Most of the new flip cards force you to work harder to flip them and have bigger upsides on the backside. Um And so I think that, you know, people get pretty excited by those backsides and, you know, the whether which ones are going to prove capable is probably going to depend on how easily they fit into pre-existing combo patterns in decks that can squeeze in the slot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a great, the front is not phenomenal. It's essentially pay one mana to loot, except it's a little worse of a loot because you're exiling it instead of discarding it, which obviously would be very attractive and um EDH, but I mean that backside the backside is the best card in the format so like I don't know I feel like people will be really and I mean EDH players definitely live in magical Christmas land right like <laughs> yeah so one of, one of the other magical Christmas land combos I, I noticed was Ether Flash with Polyraptor Polyraptor is the 5-5 five, five for 8 with Enrage whenever it takes damage you get a, a copy of it so if you have something that damages creature damages the raptor without killing it when it comes into play you get infinite creatures Ether Flash does two to every creature that comes into play and this thing's a 5-5 five, five. so if you have Ether Flash in and you get the Polyraptor on the board then that's just infinite raptors Ether Flash is an old fan favorite of mine and uh, correct me if I'm wrong but aren't there no May triggers in there yeah so you just get like forever raptors yeah but like doesn't the game technically break I have no idea like you, you, you it, assuming I believe Without having them, so let's see, Aether Flash, hold on, let me look this up. Aether Flash says, when it comes into play, you deal two damage to it. Yeah. And the new one is called, what, Poly, right? Poly yeah. Poly Poly Raptor says, if it's dealt damage, you create the token. So yeah, yes. there's no maze. So unless the, unless Enrage has a May clause in it, which I don't think it does, like it, like it's not printed on the card, then yeah, this is just a, okay. It's an, infinite, an loop. infinite loop that you can't break out of, which is pretty funny. I, I'm assuming... I'm assuming that there there's some ruling that says you just pick a number or something. Uh, well, I mean, in competitive magic, you the game is a draw, right? Like that's the old triple oblivion ring thing. The game is just an actual draw. <laughs> Interesting. So anyway, um, getting Polyraptors into play despite it costing eight is probably not that hard in EDH between things like you know sneak attack style effects through the breaches. Through the Breaches. Uh, is Through the Breach legendary only? I can't remember. Anyway, there's a bunch of ways to bring it back from the graveyard or put it out of your hand temporarily and have it hit a damage trigger and make a whole mm. bunch of Raptors. Um, so I'll leave it to the rest of you to figure out how you most want to bust that thing. Um, we mentioned earlier Kumena 
uh, Tyrant of Arazka is likely to be a thing in EDH. Um, you know, might be the first merfolk focused merfolk general. Um, the we were talking about Azor, the Lawbringer. And uh, this is the one of the other mythics, six six flying, two white, two blue, two. Um, whenever it enters the battlefield, each opponent can't cast instant or sorcery spells during that player's next turn. Um, and whenever Azor attacks, you may pay the same price as Sphinx's Revelation. And if you do, you gain X life and draw X card. So when he attacks, you Sphinx's Re- Revelation, which is cute. And if you can blink him in, a, in and out of play, you can really mess with the the flow of uh, non-creature spells from your opponents. Mm-hmm. He is really nifty. I like Azor. I saw him and was like, I don't even care about the Sphinx's Revelation. I want to put him in my Brago deck so that nobody can cast <laughs> nobody can cast sorceries on until my turn again, which at least does a pretty good job of blocking um, Wraths. Unfortunately, the way he's worded, it's they can't cast instant or sorceries during their turn. So that means you put him in the play. Your opponent can't. Your opponent can cast instant sorceries now. On their turn, they can't. But then on the next opponent's turn, they can go back to being able to cast their instants. I'm pretty sure that's how that works. So you don't get to completely lock everyone out of casting spells until your next turn. Uh, but still pretty cool. I'm curious whether deep root elite can make it in the blue green deck and modern. Um, it's the one, one for two. Whenever another merfolk enters the battlefield under your control, you put a plus one plus one counter on target merfolk you control. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect it's just outside the running because the deck's already so tight. Um, and it's also competing with the new Lord, um, there's a two mana lord that probably uh, knocks Regery out of its slot, uh, or at least will get tested. Uh, trying to find what that one is called. Well, it, I mean, Mayor Regery has barely seen any play, anyways. Well, it's it's, it's often in the in the modern Merfolk deck, it's, but they, it's it's not a lock at four, right? Like it's not, it hasn't been a four of in quite a while. I feel like that's sort of their flex slot at this point. Yeah, and so I, I expect that it will get. Uh, targeted by i just can't find the name ah there it is merfolk misbinder it's basically the simplest of all lords blue green two two other merfolk you get control get plus one plus one so you're you're ending up with three or four different lords and the nice thing here is versus regery is that you don't ever have to worry about putting your you have a much uh, lower chance of having to worry about whether to move your ether vial from two to three right Mm-hmm. Um, keep, keeping it locked on two because the majority of your lords are twos um, takes away the tapping ability of Regery, but adds uh, additional streamlining in the two slot. Yeah, that is really nice. The fact that you can just lock that in like that mm-hmm. uh, and not have to and not have to turn it up. And they only want four dollars, five dollars, even an SCG for those foils right now. Um, it's an uncommon, not a rare. So the price isn't amazing, but I could see those those foils coming down a bit during. Um, you know, peak competition on the set sales a week or two from now. And if, if they get down into the 2 to $3 range, I'll pick up a play set. Mm-hmm. Sure. Doesn't seem unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, what else catches your eye? Anything? Uh, Silent Gravestone is worth a look, I guess. That's the one mana artifact cards and graveyards can't be the targets of spells or abilities. And then for four and a tap, uh, exile all cards from all graveyards and draw a card. That gives additional flexibility in in a couple of different formats. That's actually funny because that is the anti graveyard graveyard hate card. Yeah, uh, because yeah. it stops your opponent's surgical extractions from working, uh, but it doesn't stop almost anything that graveyard based strategies are attempting to accomplish. So curious. I don't know exactly sure what the place for that is, but it's there, I guess, if a deck needs it. 
At the beginning of each upkeep, if you lost life last turn, put a plus one plus one counter on Paladin of Atonement, and when it dies, you gain life equal to its toughness. It's a one and a white one one. I could see this being at least something in a vampire deck in standard. Currently, they want a dollar for it. It could end up as a four to five dollar rare if vampires was a big deal, and that was a centerpiece that was always a four of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, there's some outside chance that that's good enough for modern if there are combos around the... I mean, the thing about losing life is that you lose life off of fetch lands. So if you're playing black-white vampires in modern, and and you can actually make that work, I have no idea if they have the tools yet to do it. Um, but this thing starts getting big pretty easily. Yes. Yeah, that can get, grow to a pretty good size. I don't know. Black-white vampires in modern, that feels like a stretch. Like It's just like Eldrazi taxes, right? It's hard, it's hard it's hard to not it's hard to not just play Eldrazi taxes instead well yeah i mean that that's my deck and it's good but it's it's a totally different thing right like the thing in modern isn't it i think you bring up a good point which is any deck that could be possible in modern has to be compared to the other four or five decks already in its archetype slot so in in con- aggro control control in combo in um you know, whatever linear strategy you're playing or or oddball thing like uh, Lantern Bridge or whatever, um, you have to ask yourself, is what I'm planning on doing, even if it's got new tools, good enough to make it worth not playing these other things? Mm-hmm. You know, like, can can white, even if white, black, you know, vampires is possible in modern, is it make sense if you can play humans or humans or merfolk? That is the... Uh... That is the core of the magic deck building experiences. Don't, and what is it? Pat Chapin's number one rule. Don't do a worse something else. Sure. Um, so I like one of the other flip cards caught my eye as being particularly hard to, hard to flip, but maybe not so much in EDH path of metal. This is the red, white one, legendary enchantment. When path of metal enters the battlefield, it deals one damage to each creature that doesn't have first strike, double strike, vigilance, or haste. So it might be good against, you know, incidental stuff in the early game uh, or token decks that put a lot of one toughness things on the board. When you attack with at least two creatures that have first strike, double strike, vigilance, and or haste. So it has to be two creatures separately, at least with some of those things. You transform it and then it's a legendary land that uh, makes any color, which is a good start. Um... One in a red taps to deal two damage to each opponent. Two in a white choose a creature at random that attack this turn destroy that creature. It's not enough, right? Like you, you want that to be a targeted destroy effect on the attacking creature, probably. What was it? I'm sorry. Which creature are we talking about? Was the card name? No, it's it's a legendary enchantment, oh, enchantment, which is called Path of Metal. It's a red and a white from Rivals of Ixalan. It's one of the flip cards. Oh, okay, this guy. Um, and when you get to the other side. It's a city of Bra- painless city of brass for one and a red. You can tap to deal two damage to each opponent for two and a white. You can choose a creature at random that attacked this turn and destroy it. I mean, you can activate the third ability in the middle of attackers. So it's not like you have to wait for it to hit you, but yeah. I, I agree. This reminds me of that red and white enchantment from dragon's maze or gate crash. That was like Le- Legion's initiative. Was that what it was? Uh, so. And it was like, it looked cool. It did stuff. It had abilities. It was this cheap enchantment. And, every- and everyone's like, yeah, this works. And then, you know, nothing, absolutely nothing from anywhere, at any point in time. And that's what this strikes me as, especially because yeah. red, white is just such a, 
It is a color combo you play because the deck is good in the moment in a format. It is not a color combo that you see people coming to regularly. Yeah, Legion's Initiative was one red for an enchantment that gave red creatures plus one, white creatures plus zero plus one, and then red into white, you exiled it, exile all creatures you control, and at the beginning of the next combat, you put them back into play, and they mm-hmm. gain haste. So, I mean, similarly finicky, um, and as as I said earlier, all these flip cards from this set uh, make you work pretty hard, so it's going to be tricky. There were a couple of the other ones, though, that uh, were a little more exciting. There's the white-black one that... Um, makes you exile a bunch of creatures and then you can put them back into play under your own uh, control. And it was the whole thing with that was that it was uh, looking pretty slow. It's called Profane Procession, one white black legendary enchantment. For five, you exile a creature. And if you've exiled three that way, you flip it. And then once you flipped it, you're paying four and a tap to put one of those things back into the onto the table under your control. So maybe in something like I would try it and like attracts a planeswalkers probably. I I just don't know what slot I'm willing to give up for it. I mean, I'm already running a ton of rafts and, and point and efficient point removal. This is a slow card. Yeah. Oh, that's so much money, money to get going. Um, it's eight for the first exile. Yeah. And then once you flip it over, you can't do it again. Like, yeah, you get to flip it. You get to basically get to exile any three things, but you had to spend 18 mana to do it. Yeah. And, and then you're spending four to claim them back. So, I mean, the card advantage is real. The question is, do you, is it worth all that time and, and mana spend? I, I, I think it's going to be hard pressed to hold slots. Well, there, here's what you do. You first you flip your Azure's Gateway, tap it for forty mana, and now you can play and activate Profane <laughs> Procession three times, no problem. But no, 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 no. But I think that one makes colorless mana, right? Uh, no, uh, that is a color mana of any one color. Oh, okay, but it still doesn't help you because all these activations are white black. Well, you're also playing uh, some other card that lets you filter black into white. They exist. I don't know what they are. <laughs> top sure. Sure. So the the blue green one is Hadana's climb, one blue green. At the beginning of combat on your turn, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control. Then if that thing has plus three plus or more plus one plus one counters on it, you flip this. That's actually one of the easier flips in something like Kraj, right? Um because the that the decks that care about plus one plus one canners, versions of Atraxa, versions of Kraj, um, and some others I'm probably not thinking of, um, already have a bunch of creatures that naturally have plus one plus one canners on them. You're moving them around with Forgotten, Ancient, and whatever. You've got a bunch of spikes in play. And then this thing flips pretty quick, and then it makes mana of any color. And then for one blue green, you get a you give a creature flying in plus X plus X where X is its power. That's not a bad little thing and to have an EDH. Yeah, this card's fatal sin is that you go through all this work and then it gets plus X plus X and flying, which is not good enough. Like it needs to do something other than just make it bigger uh, because the cards that you're putting a bunch of counters on like that, you're generally there. You're not putting 80 counters on a creature to attack for the most part. You're putting them on uh, what you might call it. Sage of hours to take an extra turn or on. Well, I mean, he wouldn't match the colors, but gave to make tokens uh, or, or things of that nature. I don't generally, it's not just a beat people up strategy. So that's my problem with winged temple is that it just, you go through all this and your payoff isn't what you want to be doing with that strategy. 
And you're in blue already, so flying is not as as valuable. And it doesn't give trample, right? Uh, no, flying XX. Trample would be nice there. Yeah. And would have been more on, on theme for blue-green. Um, the other one was Journey to Eternity. This is the one black-green. You put it on a creature, and if it dies, you flip it. That's one of the easier things to flip, probably, given that you are playing it in green-black, so you might have sack effects. That lets you return target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield. Yeah, I can see that, you know, just slamming uh, this on a guy, immediately eating it to Mirror in the Moaning Well or um, Diamond Valley, and then suddenly getting this land into play that sets you up so you can either trigger it right away or next turn. Uh, it's an interesting, it's a nifty little card. I don't know if it's going to be popular enough. Uh, I mean, it would be good in Marin, I guess, being able to just get back all that crap in Marin. But Marin's mm-hmm. already bringing stuff back into play anyway, so I don't know if you need the extra help. I think the bottom line is that other than the one that makes more mana than any other land, um, I think I like Growing Rights and Search better. Uh, yeah, I think that the, in general, the EDH cards here are a lot more narrow than we've seen in some of the other sets. So while they can be really cool and nifty in certain places, for the most part, they're not going to be as broad as the other stuff. Uh, the other one that I was going to mention was the Kama Primal Calamity, the new um, Elder Dinosaur. He's the same colors as Jazath. It's a 9-9. He does some cool stuff. You can activate him to do some other cool stuff. The biggest piece of text is that when he comes into play, you untap all your lands. Um, so you you know, you know presumably slam him down for 9, untap all your lands, and then fire off some other spells. But I don't really see him replacing Jazath as a more popular dinosaur commander just because it's nifty that he untaps your lands. But after that, all of his other abilities are are fine, but they're not sexy or exciting in the way that Jazath gets to just slam a bunch of dinosaurs into play instantly, which seems a lot cooler. Um, you know, you would play Primal Calamity in Jazath, I think, rather than the other way around. So it's a nifty card, but I'm not in love with that. Maybe Jason will have a strong opinion that differs or at least can point us in one direction. But that's my initial read of that card. Command Zone revealed this card and talked about it as a commander and also mentioned that it would show up in Gashath. And the the bottom line on this kind of a spec, say the mythic, the foils of this once they calm down, versus something that's going to show up in a whole shit ton of decks like Anguished Unmaking, is is that you you're not relying on one deck to be popular. You really want to be focused on EDH staples like Cyclonic Rift Foils that when they get reprinted aren't going to get reprinted again for a while and are going to be in Mm -hmm. every single blue deck. And if you haven't filled up your basket with that kind of stuff yet, then focusing on this really narrow stuff is, is, you know, upping your your risk level without reason. Um, So, I mean, I think that card's cool and I would probably build that, like build a dinosaur deck just for funsies. Um, but it probably will be like my sixth or seventh EDH deck to pull out of the the quiver in, yeah. when I'm in a more casual room. Um, so we did miss we did miss one of the flip cards that I think is actually maybe the most the most reasonable of all of them, especially in Brea. Storm the Vault is a four mana legendary enchantment, two blue red. Whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player, you get a lotus petal, essentially a treasure artifact token. Um, but more importantly, it's you don't need any of that text to matter for you to flip it because at the beginning of your end step if you control five or more artifacts transform storm the vault in brea decks five or more artifacts is par for the course right so whether or not you're getting the treasure artifact token from attacks you're going to flip this and it turns into one of the more broken lands of all time um, academy uh not gaia's cradle the blue guy's cradle for artifacts help me out yeah that one 
Um, except it's even better because it taps for one mana of any color, even if you have no artifacts on the table. So I think it turns into Vault of Catlacan, and I can see this being an auto-include in all of the artifact-focused decks in, in EDH, yeah? Yeah, the only, the, the only problem here is it's got blue in it, which not a lot of the artifact decks don't seem to be blue. Or at least, I mean, some of them, some of the artifact decks are not blue. Like, for instance, Doretti. Yeah, uh, and things of that nature. Blue tends to be more about swarming the battlefield with artifacts, whereas red is like creating big, awesome ones or, or kind of goofing around with them. So like, it doesn't fit perfectly in those strategies, anyways. It does so, but it, it, it does limit your accessibility with the card by a hair. But in general, yeah, I mean, it, it, you do get to slam it in in uh, Brea. But I mean, again, at six and fifteen dollars, like forget it. You know, I would pay two dollars for foils of this, maybe. I think we're going to get a chance closer to five anyway. <clears throat> the And the thing here is, again, the, as I was just saying, um, specificity to commander versus format staple. Um, you really want your your staples to be color-based, not commander-based is, I guess, where I'm going. Um, Brea is the third most popular commander. Um, so And you run Doretti in her instead of necessarily running Doretti. Doretti's not even in the top 20. Um, so in terms of its inclusion in my Brea deck, I think it's a, a slam dunk. Um, so if you're playing that, you're probably going to want to pick up these foils that they're low, um, in terms of this versus any of the many cards we recommend instead, probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair. Okay. I think that's pretty good for now. We can probably dive into rivals a little bit more next week. <laughs> we question whether we would need to, but yes, we could. <laughs> All right. So that's a wrap. Where can people find you online, Travis? I am on Twitter at wizard bumpin B U M P I N. You can also find me. Uh, every Monday at MTG Price, where I write the Watchtower article series. I also do the webcasts, Cartel Aristocrats occasionally. And if you like playing Magic, check out Scry.land. Find Magic in your area. And you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, I enjoyed our episode today, James. Thanks for joining me, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.